As a leader who I believe God has called to anticipate not only what we should do now as a body of believers, but what we should do next. The Lord, I believe, has been speaking something very specific to our church, and it begins with our men. And this will sort of form the frame for the thoughts I will share with you this morning. Number one, be strong. Be strong. There's a phrase that appears repeatedly in the Old Testament. It's simply this, dwell in the land. You know what that phrase means? It means stand with your feet firmly planted on the ground that God has given you. It means do more in your lifetime than live and die. It means dwell in the land, sure-footed, and occupy the territory that I've entrusted to you. Dwell in the land means be fruitful and productive. It means that everything that God has entrusted to you, take of it and develop it so that you can multiply it and return it to God more and better than it was when he gave it to you. In order to do that, you and I must be strong. You say, Pastor, what are we talking about? Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Adversity and conflict are inevitable. Living in defeat is optional. It is a choice that most people make because they surrender to their situations and their circumstances. Yet the wisest man who ever lived said this, if you are weak in crisis, you are weak indeed. The message translation of that verse in Proverbs says, if you falter in crisis, there wasn't much to you, to you to begin with. Yet we know that God never created anything that was feeble or inadequate. That means you are equal to the task. And this, God, this morning, I believe that God wants to remind us. And for some of us, he wants to instruct us for the first time how we effortlessly navigate between these two worlds, what is natural and what is spiritual. Because the truth is this morning, City Church, you're not just a human being having a spiritual experience. You are a spiritual being mastering your human experience. I'll say that again. You're not just a human being. You're more than just flesh and blood who occasionally has a spiritual experience on Sundays or when you go to Bible study. I'll say that again. You're more than just flesh and blood who has a spiritual epiphany when you open your Bible and have your daily devotional. You are first and foremost a spiritual being that God has created to master your human experience. Not just to barely get by now, not just to hang on until we make it to master this human experience. And that's why Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. The amplified translation of that verse says that you might have life to the fullest until it overflows. The psalmist prayed and he said, God, you anoint my head with oil until my cup runs over. Not to live a life that is just enough, but in every area of your life, spiritually, emotionally, physically, financially, materially, to win. So the first instruction we get from God is be strong. 
because there will be adversity. There will be difficulty. And if I've said it once here at City Church, I've said it a million times. In fact, Alonzo Mourning is credited with saying adversity introduces a man to himself. You and I will never truly know what we're made of until we're forged in the crucible of crisis. It's one thing to say I'm big and bad and I'm, a, I, I, I'm the best thing since sliced bread when everything is going your way. It's amazing how quickly our tune changes when the pressures of life begin to... And this is what I know about crisis. When the pressures of life begin to squeeze you, it's like a sponge. <laughs> Whatever is in you, it's what's going to come out of you. And the question then becomes, when life squeezes you, does God pop out? Does victory pop out? Does strength come out? The challenge first and foremost to our men at Fight Club and to our congregation is be strong. Number two, the second thing I believe the Lord spoke to my heart in prayer was stabilize. Be strong but stabilize. And I said, Lord, what do you mean by that? He said, I want you to challenge the men and I want you to challenge your church to minimize or eliminate the turbulence, the chaos, and the disorder in their lives. I'll say that again. Minimize, eliminate the chaos, the disorder, the turbulence in your life. One of the first things personal trainers do, Melvin, when they're, when they're strengthening the people they're training, uh, is they, 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 they put them in an unstable environment on that big old bouncy ball. What do you call those things? Are you a personal trainer? Kind of, sort of. Okay, you're not. Okay, I, okay, I was going to have you help me with my sermon. But they put you on the big old bouncy ball. And they have you do the exercises on the bouncy ball. You know why they do that? They put you in an unstable environment because the only way they can strengthen your core is by introducing instability. Okay, I was going to say a whole lot more about that, but let me get to point number three. Not only is God calling us to be strong, not only is God challenging us to stabilize. Notice God's first order of business in Genesis 1, we're introduced to God as a creator. But in creation, God brings order to everything that was chaotic. Let me tell you what most of us try to do. We try to build a superstructure on a chaotic foundation. We think that if we ignore the chaos in our lives and just put something on top of it to cover it up, that somehow our lives are going to stabilize. Don't happen. Don't happen. Forgive my grammar. Nothing in my life stabilizes until I first deal with the foundation upon which I stand. 
And in order to build on the foundation, I have to bring order where there is this disorder. And not only did God create, let me tell you something about creation, Genesis chapter 1. I wish I had time to even teach right now Genesis chapter 1. Because if I'm going to stabilize, what I have to realize is God is not just a creator, but his first order of business was to bring stability where there was chaos and disorder. And then he began the process of creation. In the process of creation, it wasn't random or haphazard. Everything that God created, I'm talking to those who, of us who want to stabilize our lives. Those of us who are serious about minimizing and or eliminating chaos. God gives us the blueprint in Genesis chapter 1. First thing he does is he brings order to where there is chaos. And then he begins the creation process. But nothing he creates is random or haphazard. Everything God creates is sequential. May I venture to say that sometimes the things that we're working on and our effort in life is not because we're not trying hard enough. It's just that we're trying to create things out of order. Okay. Without light, there is no photosynthesis. Without photosynthesis, there's no vegetation. Without vegetation, there's no way to sustain life on earth, animal or human. God didn't have this big idea and say, you know what? I want to create somebody in my image and likeness, and let me just plop them down in the midst of chaos and disorder because this is the big vision that I have. To create a man that will have dominion in the earth, he didn't start with man, even though that was the end result. He says, I have to create an environment where the man can thrive, even without my involvement. The way you stabilize your environment is you begin to create your environment sequentially, in the proper order, so that on the seventh day, you can remove yourself from what you have created, and it will continue without your intervention. Y'all, I don't think y'all ready for what I got to drop on y'all this morning. I don't think y'all ready. I don't think y'all ready. Most of us get fixated on the sixth day. But God says, focus on the first day. Because if you even get the first day right, what you do with the first day determines what happens on day two. And let me even tell you about day one. God is not just a creator. He doesn't just create stuff and leave it that way. God is not just a creator. He is an innovator. He said, what are you talking about, Pastor Ray? Let me tell you something. Everything that God has given you that you possess, your skills and your gifts are in seed form. Seed form. Most of us die with that seed still in us. We never plant it. And because we never plant it, we never nurture it. Because we never nurture it, we never fertilize it. And nothing of what God has already deposited in us grows. You know why? Because we're content just walking around with a whole bunch of seed of potential in us. That's never realized, never actualized. Let me tell you what God is. He's not just a creator, but he's an innovator. First day of creation. God says, let there be light. Is that the end of the first day of creation? 
Scripture says he took the light, what he had created, and he separated it and made a greater and a lesser light. He called one the sun. He called one the moon. After he took that and developed it, he, he then made the stars now. Out of one source, one thing came innovation. And that's why you've heard me say this more than once. If better is possible, then good is not enough. Y'all playing around with the preacher this morning. I know I'm preaching better than y'all shouting this morning. I know I'm preaching way better. Can somebody say preach, black man? There it is. Come on, somebody. That'll help me out this morning. Yeah, give me that handkerchief. There you go. Come on, somebody. There you go. Man, that almost caught my ear, man. That would have hurt. That would have hurt. What we talking about here? Uh, innovation. It says stabilize. Bring order to the chaos. But you have to do it sequentially. Proverbs chapter 24 and 27 says it this way. Prepare your outside work. Make it fit for yourself in the field. Then, afterward, build your house. Most people go through life building houses, haven't prepared the field, haven't prepared the outside work. It has to be sequential in order to see the blessing of God on it. So the question then becomes, what are you creating every single day that God gives you? And are you creating it in the right sequence, the proper order? Because ultimately, God wants for everybody in this room to at one point in their life rest from their labor. God stepped back from creation and did nothing because he had created a system that was self-sustaining. And the reason the system was self-sustaining is because it was created in sequence. Proper order. Most times we struggle in life. I'm talking to you now from personal experience now. Not because of a lack of effort, but because of the wrong approach. Nothing left to give. And he says, just tweak your. And when we stabilize our lives, what God is saying is you need more tools in your toolbox. Because where I'm about to take you is going to require a wrench or a screwdriver, not just a hammer. And so how do we bring order to chaotic places? You create intentionally and you create sequentially. Number three. <laughs> man, I wish I had time to do this thing, man. Number three is stretch. Number three is stretch. Number three is stretch. Uh, I think that's the zone where God wants us to live. He wants us to live at full capacity. The problem with stretching is you ain't going to be able to stretch 
if you ain't stable and if you ain't strong. God says, look, I'm trying to expect, I'm trying to get more to you. But in order to get more to you, I need you to expand and enlarge your capacity. But you can't even start to expand and stretch and enlarge your capacity because your life is too unstable. And because of the instability, you are worn out just trying to survive. So how can I ask you to stretch? If you're already exhausted on this level, how can I even trust you to stretch to the next level? When there's so much disorder and chaos on this level. The problem is, we think we're waiting on God. God said, I'm waiting on you. Listen to what the scripture says. Psalm 84 and verse 11. The Lord is a sun and a shield. Mm -hmm. It says, he gives grace and glory. A sun and a shield. He is a sun. That means he illuminates our way. Gives us insight. He's also a shield. He protects us. He gives us grace and glory. Glory is kabod. The Hebrew word is kabod. He gives us weight and substance. And then it continues and says, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. God is not a selfish withholder. He is a generous rewarder. But God's like, man, I got all this stuff stored up for you, dog. I added the dog. God didn't say that. Um, but if I dump this on you right now, you're too unstable. You're too unstable. And you're not strong enough to stand under the weight of the next level. So to those who are willing to be strong this morning, those who are willing to stabilize, the instruction to us is it's time to stretch. I shared this with the men. I shared this with the men. I shared this with the men uh, a couple of weeks ago. Jesus shows up on the Sabbath. He comes into the synagogue. And the argument, the dispute is over whether he should heal on the Sabbath or not. Uh, thankfully, there's a man with a withered hand. In the synagogue, on the Sabbath, and Jesus is in the building. What do you do? Oh, I had a Keanu Reeves moment. Speed. The bus is moving at 60 miles per hour. What do you do? What do you do? The ladies are chuckling because they're Keanu Reeves fans. Or, or a few of them think he's cute. Uh, what was I talking about again? The man with the withered hand. Withered hand. Jesus shows up. And they're having this big argument about whether to heal him or not. This is what Jesus says to the man with the withered hand. And Melvin, I looked this up, did a little bit of word study. That word withered, it means scorched. What that suggests is there is a possibility that this man had experienced a physically altering burn. Uh, I grew up in Liberia, West Africa. And uh, maybe every two years or so, I see my friend Henry Creighton is here, but every two years or so, who also grew up in Liberia, every two years or so, mercy ships would come to Liberia, and they would perform these free surgeries that the doctors in Liberia couldn't perform. And you would see people with all kinds of deformities, 
all manner. I see uh, Cliff here, Cliff Besa. Uh, from time to time, you'd see people who had suffered severe burns. And because the kind of treatment, the kind of trauma treatment that they needed wasn't always readily available, uh, the, 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 the arm, the limb, whatever, healed incorrectly. And a lot of times the skin would grow back, but it would attach the wrong way. And many of those limbs, because of inactivity and the way the skin healed, uh, would atrophy. And those arms or those limbs would eventually lose their strength and lose their ability. And so Jesus comes to a man with a withered hand that has been scorched. Dude's hand is dead, man. Yet Jesus says to him, stretch forth your hand. Your dead, impotent hand. Now, what does that mean? Uh, is Jesus being rude and, and, and cruel to this man? When he looks at the man and sees the man's disability, sees the man's limitations, and tells him to stretch. I don't care what your arm looks like. I don't care that it's burned. I don't care that it's withered. I don't care that it's dead. Stretch that hand. You know what Jesus is teaching all of us? That with every instruction he gives comes the grace and the power to get it done. There are some of us in this room that God has told to stretch. And unlike the man with the withered hand, we argue with God. God, don't you see my limitations? Don't you see that my hand is dead? Don't you see that this hand hasn't moved for years? How rude of you, God, to ask that of me. Yet the scripture says, Jesus told the man, stretch forth your hand. And the scripture says, and the man stretched forth his hand. Oh boy, how did that happen? It happened because with every instruction that God gives comes the power to get it done. Okay, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Didn't Jesus tell the 10 lepers, go show yourself to the priest? The problem with that instruction is they couldn't even go in public. When Jesus encountered them, they were on the outskirts of the city. The reason they were on the outskirts of the city is because they were ceremonially unclean because of their leprosy. Jesus sees the 10 lepers and say, heal us. He doesn't heal them. He says, go show yourself to the priest. To the priest. They could have sat there and have a, had a whole theological debate with Jesus. Said, don't you know what the law says? We are unclean. If you heal me and I'm clean, then I'll go to the priest. He said, no. Go to the priest with those little nubs you got left for fingers, with those oozing sores with those rags on because they wore rags that identified the type of uh, uh, infirmity that they had. He said, I want you to leave here just the way you are and go show yourself to the priest. And the scripture says they were healed as they went. In order to stretch, in this season, I'm talking about you individually and our church corporately. It's going to require 
our willingness to obey seemingly illogical instructions. It means build the ark before the rain. Rain didn't come for 40 years though. But Noah was faithful and diligent in building an ark for a natural phenomenon he had never even experienced. And what if the thing that God is inviting you to do, what if the thing that God is inviting us to do has no precedent? Meaning it's never been done before. Isn't that what we look for in law? You're a lawyer, Melvin. We look for the cases where precedent was set. What if God is intentionally asking you to stretch by putting you in a situation for which there is no precedent, there's no blueprint, it's never been done before? What if this morning God is saying, with all of your leprosy, go show yourself to the priest. And as you go, the manifestation of your breakthrough will happen. What if... Your hand right now is withered. It's, it's, it's a metaphor for the things in our lives that seem dead. And God is saying, I want to breathe new life into that thing again. But will you stretch? The miracle manifested at the moment of obedience. The power of God to stretch happened at the moment this guy chose to obey. Let me tell you something about our breakthrough. Breakthrough doesn't happen at the moment of manifestation. Your breakthrough, my breakthrough happens at the moment of persuasive revelation. The woman with the issue of blood said, if I can but touch the hem of his garment, I will be made whole. That was her breakthrough. That was her breakthrough. Let me tell you why that's a breakthrough. Because it was that persuasive revelation right up here in this gray matter that propelled her through a crowd. A woman who had bled for 12 years, who was feeble and unclean. It was that assurance on the inside that if I could just get to him, I'll be healed. Now, if she had waited for Jesus to come her way, miracle never would have happened. But because she was fully persuaded, she pressed through. Are you fully persuaded? Are you fully persuaded about the dream that's in your heart? Because if you ain't, it ain't happening. Because your life and my life will always move in the direction of our most dominant thought. And if your dominant thought is, if I can but touch the hem of his garment, it will make you press through a multitude of people, unclean, again, ceremonially unclean, shouldn't have been in public. It will propel you. It will compel you to press against all odds to get to Jesus. But you can't stretch if you ain't strong, if you ain't stable. I'm looking at the clock. I didn't even get to my message, Melvin. (laughs) I got to let y'all go. Be strong. Can I go fast and furious? I'm going to go fast and furious. Be strong. Um, Wow. How do we do this? (laughs) Ephesians chapter 6. Put Ephesians chapter 6 on the screen if you would. Ephesians chapter 6. 
Ephesians chapter 6. Again, we find those words. These are the words of Paul. And he begins verse 6 with the words, finally. Uh, Paul is writing these words from prison. Paul writes, uh, he, he wrote a number of epistles from prison. There are commentators who suggest that his inspiration for what he's about to write about the armor of God comes from the fact that he's sitting in a prison cell guarded by Roman soldiers. And he looks at his surroundings and he sees these Roman soldiers going back and forth in their armor. And he says, oh man, there's a spiritual principle in here that I need to use to encourage the church of Jesus Christ. There is a lesson in all of this. Uh, can I say this? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, learn. I'm learning this too. And I, I think I'm, I'm making a passing grade. Learn to put your struggle in the right context, man. Because <laughs> Paul could have sat in that prison and said, woe is me. Pity party. I'm serving Jesus. And these people keep beating up on me. They're trying to kill me. All of this because I'm serving God. Yet from his prison, he musters up enough fortitude to encourage people who are free. I'm in jail, but I'm going to encourage people who are free. I ain't writing them a letter saying call Johnny Cochran or Brian Longcar, Jim Adler, get me out of here. No, from his prison cell, he encourages the church. And this letter is encouraging us 2,000 years later out of a prison cell. Let me tell you something, City Church. Just because it's hard doesn't mean God's not in it. And we talked about this extensively in the men's breakfast, man, about counting it all joy when you're faced with diverse trials and temptations. You know why? Because something good's going to come out of it. That in the kingdom, it's not a win or lose proposition. It's win or learn. Okay, y'all don't like that. Because this is what I know. We like for people to get in the pit with us. And when we pull out our violin, we want somebody to jump in the pit with us. Nah, nah. Homie, don't play that. Get out the pit and on with your life. In the kingdom, you win and you learn. So what was I saying? Oh, uh, uh, Paul says, finally, this is the exclamation point. This is the book ends on his letter to the Ephesian church. And this is what he said. He says, be strong. There's that phrase again. I didn't just conjure this up from the somewhere, some, no, he told Joshua three times in four verses, be strong and courageous. Again, it's echoed in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter six. He said, be strong, be strong. Being a Christ follower is not for wimps not for wimps 
So verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Powerful phrase. That we don't navigate life in our own strength. That the strength of God is available to us. And he continues in verse 11. Uh, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Hmm? Uh, but put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Uh, can I say that again? I, uh, and I, no, let me not get ahead of myself. Let me, uh, uh, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. He's speaking of the reality of a realm that is not natural. It's in the Bible. That your struggle and my struggle is not only human. Can I say it this way? Maybe the power behind your persistent problem is not natural. The power behind this problem that won't go away may be from beyond this natural realm. Oh boy. I don't even have time to talk about all of this stuff today. But what Paul is teaching us about is the reality of a, a realm that is not natural, that is spiritual in its origin. Let me tell you who the real fight is against. The, the problem with most of us, when life gets hectic, <laughs> we turn to the thing or the person closest to us to make them the punching bag. When life's not going my way, I'm going to find the thing closest to me and I'm going to squeeze it until hopefully God comes out of them. Don't work that way, baby. The more you squeeze them, the more of their humanity you will get. Because you're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Your struggle is not with your boss on the job. Y'all heard me say this last week. Resist the temptation to engage the enemy in an arena where he has the advantage. And that's where most of us fall on our faces. Because we're wrestling against flesh and blood, but you think it's your husband, though. You think it's your wife, you think it's your kids. You turn toward the thing closest to you. When that's not the real problem at all. Oh man. Can y'all give me a few minutes? Let me just finish this message. Okay, y'all give me this is y'all give me a few minutes. I, I'm not gonna finish it. I, I can promise you that, because I didn't even get to point one. <laughs> and I got six or seven. So it ain't ending it ain't ending today. But let me just help you with the number one. Okay. Um, your vantage point or your perspective uh, in battle matters. What you see and how you see matters. Let me, let me tell you why. I'm going to help you to reorient yourself. A buddy of mine, uh, I told you guys, is, 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 is in law enforcement. So we always talk about these spiritual principles of law enforcement. 
And one of the principles he shared with me is something they call the OODA loop, O-O-D-A, the OODA loop. Every time a law enforcement, and he's with uh, the Treasury Department, but whenever someone who's federal, they go through the same training, they teach them the OODA loop. Y'all ready for the OODA loop? All my note takers, see that? That's confirmation of the OODA loop. Let me tell you what the OODA loop is. The first O is observe. Whenever a law enforcement goes into a hostile, law enforcement officer goes into a hostile environment, the first thing they do is they observe the environment. Number two, they orient themselves to that environment. Is it on a hill? Is it in a corner? Is it light? Is it dark? They orient themselves to that environment. First they observe, and then they orient. How many people are in the building? How many children? How many women? How many men? How many people are armed? How many are not armed? They orient themselves after observation. Number three, they decide. Do we go in now or do we call for backup? Do we get a negotiator or do we engage? Based on what they observe and their orientation, they make a decision. And then they act. Why am I sharing that with you? Most of us have the wrong orientation to the problems that we face. Because in our observation, we think it's that person standing right in front of me when our observation is incomplete. And because we have the wrong observation, our orientation to it is wrong. Therefore, our decisions are wrong, and therefore our actions are wrong. And if my actions are wrong, my outcomes are wrong. I'm just teaching the Bible. So, so check this out. When you know the outcome of a thing in advance, it changes how you respond to what you're experiencing in the present. What I know ultimately impacts my response presently. Okay. Uh, have you ever missed a Cowboys game, Brian? that you had on DVR, and you were with your friends, and he said, don't tell me the score, don't tell me the score, don't tell me the score. And then somebody just kind of blurted out the score. You know the Cowboys won. But when you get home and watch that game, it changes your orientation to the game because you know the outcome. Even if the Cowboys are down with five seconds left, and he has to throw a Hail Mary. You know, the Cowboys won. So even though you're watching the game and the fumbles and the tackles and the interceptions, it might make you frustrated. But your orientation to the game is different because you know the end of the game. I wonder how many of us if we reminded ourselves of the outcome, that if we do things God's way, no matter what I'm experiencing in the present, it's a fixed fight. I already know the outcome. And it impacts how I live, walk, talk, think, react, respond in the present. Because I know the outcome. 
So even when I'm wrestling against flesh and blood, even when the evil day comes, even when I, it seems like there's no end to this struggle, I know the score. Jesus won 2,000 years ago and said it is finished. Now let me tell you the problem, and this is where I'm going to end this sermon right here. A big part of the problem, Kanye, uh, uh, a big part of our orientation has to do with information or the lack thereof. Hosea wrote in Hosea 4 and 6, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. The reason most of us respond to life the way we do is because of a lack of knowledge. And this is where I close the message. Man, I'm trying to remember my U.S. history because I just had a moment where I believe God brought this to my remembrance. The dates may be wrong, but the principle is still true. But I think it may have been maybe January. You guys might know this because you're, you're Zig Ziglar. You guys might know this. Your history is impeccable. But I want to say it's probably around January of 1863, maybe. Maybe, possibly. Somebody Wikipedia this, man. Google it and give me the right date. But somewhere around January of 1863, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. January of 1863. Is that right? Skills, Pastor Ray got skills. Just coming off the dome, you know. Come on, somebody. The problem for some with the Emancipation Proclamation that set every slave in America free on that day is the fact that not everybody had that information, even though they were already free. For those living in Texas and parts south, the information that the law said they were now free did not reach their ears until June 19th. It was signed January 1863. Did not reach the ears of slaves living in the South until June 19th, a.k.a. Juneteenth of 1865. Even though every single one of them was already free. Because they didn't have information. And it affected their orientation to what was happening to them in the moment. And that's why Paul begins the armor of God with put on the belt of truth. He said your armor is worthless if it is not based on the right information. And that is the truth of God's word. Next week, Again, everything that God creates is sequential. This is not just Paul just picking stuff up. He could have started with the helmet of salvation because they had on a helmet. Isn't that what we do? Let's talk about this thing head to toe. Why does he start with the belt of truth? Because everything that drives our lives 
is information. And you've heard me say this, who you are, who I am, is the sum total of the voices that you've chosen to trust over the course of your lifetime. And most of us have been trusting bad information, misinformation, and he says the way you and I win over the enemy is with the belt of truth. If I don't have the right information, my orientation to life, my orientation to relationships is skewed. It's a big, big deal. It's a big, big deal. So my challenge to the men is be strong. But we got to suit up. We have to put on the full armor of God and begin to contend for the truth of God's word and live according to God's word. Let me remind you that our adversary is a liar and the father of lies. His first weapon against humanity was deception. And all deception begins with the introduction of doubt. Did God really say? And most of us go through life and never crack open this book. And so when the enemy begins to speak lies to us, we don't know what's true and what's a lie. Yet the scripture says, put on the belt of truth. That is the very foundation of your life. And most of us lose every day because we're believing and buying into lies that are from the pit of hell because we go through life and never put on the belt of truth, which is the word of God. It took a year and a half. It took a year and a half for men who were free to begin to walk in their freedom because they didn't have information. Let me tell you something. Last statement. It's not the truth that sets you free. It's the truth you know. Jesus said, and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. There are Christians living in bondage, even though this word is filled with truths that are still in bondage because they don't know what it says. It's not the truth. Here's all the truth you and I will ever need, but there are areas in all of our lives where we walk in bondage because like the Emancipation Proclamation, most of us have not experienced our personal Juneteenth. I told the Lord a few weeks ago, I ain't playing around no more with this thing, man. When I step up to the mic, I'm going to teach the word like it's my last day. Uh, we've been playing around too long, y'all. I'm talking to everybody. I'm talking to myself. We are at war with a very real adversary who wants nothing more than to destroy you. And here's why. Because we bear the image of God, a God he despises. And therefore, he despises anything and everything that God loves, including you. The thief comes only, the scripture says, to steal, to kill, 
and to destroy. And that's why, can you just put this on the screen real quick? 2 Corinthians, I think I have it as 2 Corinthians 2.11. I just want them to, I want all of us to see this before we leave. 2 Corinthians 2.11. The reason we're going to be teaching this, the armor of God, is for this reason. I believe it's 2 Corinthians 2.11. Ah. It says, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. You know what this is about? It's about exposing the enemy. Can you go to the verse before? I promise you this is the last thing I'm going to say. I promise you. This is so juicy. It's so juicy, man. It's so juicy. Can you go to verse 10? Put 10 and 11 together. Let me tell you why. Because this is just one example of how we have the wrong orientation in life. 10 and 11. You know the context in which he says this? Verse 10 will tell you. I just want to give you one example. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should have the advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. You know what that whole verse is telling us? Those two verses? It's saying that one of the enemy's devices is unforgiveness. And because we don't have the right information, we orient ourselves the wrong way to an offense. And now the enemy has an advantage over you. Not the person who wronged you. Not the person who slandered you. The enemy has an advantage over you. Because you harbor unforgiveness, and it is a device of the enemy. But we're going to expose all that stuff with the truth of God's word, though. I want you all to see it. And we're going to be doing more of this. For those of us who insist on not forgiving someone who harmed us. The enemy has you wrapped up, tied up, and you think you're in control. It is a device of the enemy to harbor unforgiveness. He has the advantage over you unless and until you forgive. Father, I ask you to seal this word in our hearts.